0: Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by the amazing Akema Paul Lambert. Akema is a litigation partner at Hogan Lovell, specializing in commercial litigation and arbitration. Akema trained at the firm before becoming an associate... She then spent five years as an associate here in Cleary Gottlieb before moving to Devoys and Plimpton as a litigation international counsel. Akima is the founder of Hogan Lovell's Caribbean Desk, advising Caribbean clients and those with business in the UK who work in the Caribbean. She is also the founder of the Society of Caribbean Lawyers. She has been recognized for her advocacy on environmental issues and awarded the UN's Global 500 Award. Akima has also been awarded the Senior Leader category by the BRAC British Business Awards, Empower Top 100 Executives 2022, Legal Week Rising Star 2022, Next Generation Partner 2022, and the Lawyer Hot 100 2022. She also previously served as a diplomat, serving as Grenada's ambassador to the Holy See. Wow. So a very, very warm welcome Akima.
1: Hi, and welcome. I welcome here to Hogan Novels, currently at my desk, and um, I'm excited to be on the program.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you. And before we dive into all your amazing projects, achievements, and experiences to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the show. On the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality if you've seen it?
1: That's a very, very good disclaimer at the end, because I actually have not watched a single episode of Suits. And I know it seems like sacrilege, it seems like heresy, but I really ever get the time to watch or complete a series. So for me, it would have to be an NA, not applicable. But if you asked me that question about Bridgerton or something else that I watched maybe a year or two ago, I would have been very happy to oblige. But what I can say from what I've seen on, of it in terms of the stills, um, I think Meghan Markle looks absolutely perfect. So um, that's all I can say,
0: unfortunately. No, that, And that's fine. And with that, we will move on to talking all about you. So to begin with, Akima, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your background and, and career journey?
1: Oh so I a transplant um to the UK, a proud transplant actually. I grew up on the very small island of Grenada. I don't know how many people are familiar with it, but I like to say I grew up in one of the smallest towns in the smallest islands in the world, really, and my village was only 10,000 people. I didn't come from a lot of money. I came from a working-class background, um, but I had a really, really happy childhood, extremely happy. I spent days, you know, on cocoa plantations, playing around um, lots of times in rivers and on the beach. It was a really idyllic, really, really happy childhood. I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer for my sins, and the journey and the seed was planted when I was a student at the St. George's Convent, St. George's, I used to see all of the lawyers walking into the assizes, and they just seemed so powerful. They seemed so interesting. They had that sense of drama and majesty about them. It seemed like a huge theatrical production from the gowns and the wigs and, you know, standing up in court and defending someone and using all of the, the hand gestures. I thought I wanted some of that. So um, my background has been, I was very lucky to obtain a scholarship to read law at Cambridge. Um, then I went to Paris to study for a matrice. I came back to the UK. I never intended to to stay, but I ended up staying in the UK. And the rest is, is absolutely history. So um, this is really a small town girl and um, someone who's actually traversed a lot of challenges to actually build a career in the law in the UK in a big city.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, you, you've been so successful and it is super inspiring. We always want to try and get guests onto the show who really have got a story to tell and you absolutely have and you know congratulations on everything you have achieved and I can't wait to talk more because today now you are a litigation partner at Hogan Lovells you do high stakes you know commercial litigation arbitration work you trained at the firm take yourself back to the the beginning of Hogan Lovells what were the seats that you completed as a as a trainee.
1: Yeah, And before I start, I'd like to say, I think, you know, sometimes you listen to the intros and you can't quite recognize yourself because it's been, you know, you always see the career highlights, but no one really mentions the lowlights, you know, what the challenge is, which is, you know, as as, as important as anything else. But I arrived as a fresh face trainee. I knew nothing about the law. Um, I actually start with someone called Chris Cross, believe it or not. And he was the one who, um, I don't know if many of you saw the hip hop, you know, Chris Cross is going to make you jump. And he immediately, exactly, he put me at ease, you know, and I I thought, oh my God, there is someone I can actually relate to. And that's the reason I chose Morgan Novels. It was actually people that I related to. I thought, would I like coming to work here? And of all the law firms that I had been to, this was the one where I felt like the people were fun. So, you know, there you go for choosing a law firm, thinking that you're going to have fun, right? Um, But I did have fun. (laughs) I did have lots of fun. And um, I chose, I should say, some of the seats chose you, as a lot of students would probably know. You can highlight your choices of seats, but it would be really, you know, what the firm can accommodate at any particular time. So I think I got the fun seat in the beginning. And um, that was great. I sat with a guy um, who's actually my partner here now, Eric. And he was absolutely a delight to work with and gave me lots of responsibility. Um, and I did it with someone I considered to be a friend, Amelia. And it was great. And then I went to commercial litigation, um, which was a challenge, actually, because then I saw all of the mistakes that I made in my fun seat been litigated. And I thought, what have I done? But the challenge was actually I had a very old school supervisor who would dictate everything, who had, you know, a pocket watch. It was very, he was very traditional. And on my first day, he said, no crunching, no chewing, no opening files, no eating, no, no, no anything in the office. And I thought, what am I supposed to do? Um, But it was a challenge that actually, you know, outlined to me the power of um, connections and and networking and and community and all those good things. Because by the end of the seat, we actually became friends. And I had a really, really good time there. After that, I did a capital market seat and then I did a seat in Paris. So it was a mixed bag in terms of experiences. Paris was absolutely wonderful from um, a living perspective. I previously lived in Paris as a student, but I didn't have any money then. So it was great going back, you know, with a city law firm trainee salary and actually being able to afford eating at some nice restaurants um from time to time and actually seeing the city as a grown up. So um yeah, I had a I had a great combination of seats. I think it gave me that good balance of corporate litigation. And I would encourage anybody who's looking to be a litigator to actually make sure that you get that rounded experience. It's it's so important
0: yeah and it, it is it is a well blended rounded training contract that you had and just to go back i absolutely love that song by crisscross jump, jump. <laughs> jump i was jumping in my seat when you said that well, and yeah, going back, to, <laughs> and going back to to france maybe with the salary be able to enjoy some of the french cuisine and the fine things out there i'm sure was lots of fun too and you're absolutely right in your message around you know we're very good to talk about the highlights but the lowlights and those challenges they're actually where you're going to grow and you know, you're getting out of your comfort zone and coming over those adversities. You know, really shape you for your your, your future. So thank you for for you know mentioning that because yeah, you have a very impressive CV and experience, but you know it takes a lot of work to get there. And so you completed a, a very rounded training contract, as you said, and then you decided to to specialise in commercial education and arbitration. Why did you Why did you choose to do that?
1: Oh, I always wanted to be a litigator. I wouldn't have done law if I didn't get the chance to litigate. I think it suits my personality very well. I've always been a child who liked to argue. And my mom has always said, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd make a very good lawyer. But separate and apart from that, I think it's about storytelling. I love storytelling. And there's, in litigation is all about telling the story. You go to court, you listen to someone's side of the story, You get your descendants' perspective, their side of the story, and you go to court to tell the story and the judge rules on whose story is actually the most believable. So it's probably one of the most ancient arts of storytelling, and I've always been interested in that, even as a kid. I was always, you know, creative. I was always writing. And as I sort of got into the job, I realized so many facets of it just really gelled with how I like to do things. I'm quite analytical. I'm a polymath. I'm interested in so many different industries and in litigation from one day to the other, I can be learning about compressors um, or I can have a case about pineapples. You know, you don't really get that sort of variety in the law. um, I think if you do a a straight up corporate transaction. So I, I think it's interesting and I think it's one of the most interesting things you can do. And then tied to the storytelling bit you're an advocate. You know, what better than to actually stand in front of a lot of people and tell them why you should win? You know, I like winning. <laughs> so it's, it's the part of the job that really excites me. It sets me aflame. It's suited to me. And, and I'm not saying by all of that, that you have to be an extrovert because I think these are all extroverted qualities. I think it suits so many different types and it suits both side of, sides of my personality. You know, the introverted side where I really get into the technicalities and the, an- the analytical side of things and the technical side of the arguments. But it also allows me to bring my full self really to the equation when I'm arguing a case or I'm talking to clients or I'm, you know, having an exposition of the ideas and everything else that I've learned to my trainees and my associates. So it really plays to a lot of strengths as a lawyer. I recommend it.
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, I love that you, again, shared so many things that were, were going through my mind. We've had um, Mitch Jackson come on the show, who's a California trial lawyer, 2013, and, and, and recently as well. And he talks about the being an artist, you know, in terms of performing and the storytelling and exactly what you said there in terms of you know being able to articulate stories and, and win people over and win arguments and i like to say in my world sort of facts tell but stories sell and i think if you can persuade and you know convince people through the art of storytelling which i think is a great skill that we could all be perfecting and working on there's a really good take home message there and you touched on it lightly but i want to dig a little bit deeper because it sounds like you get great variety in terms of your your day-to-day but what does a typical day look like for you as a sort of you know a top partner in an international law firm explain sort of a bit more about the nature of the work that you do
1: there is no typical day so i will tell you that (laughs)
0: each day and
1: that's that's what makes it fun that's what makes it interesting so i'll tell you maybe what i did today for starters so i started um, by working on um, a very complicated claim that we needed to get in today And I'll probably turn back to it together with some accountants and a barrister that I'm working on it with, um, and also some of the senior partners in the group. So there's the substantive work. Then I had a a lunch today um, with someone for a business development opportunity. Um, Later today, I'm actually meeting someone um, for our real network, which are race and ethnicity um, at Hogan Lovells. And we're going to talk about some events that we want to do for Black History Month later in the year. And we're also going to talk about our race action plan. I then have a meeting of the Society of Caribbean Lawyers later on in terms of the Caribbean desk, We're doing a webinar for Women's Day, so I'm sending materials out. I have a few different calls um, on documents in relation to a huge disclosure exercise that we're planning to get out. So again, I have an hour and a half at 4.30 today. So it all goes to show that there is no typical day. And I think the biggest change for me as a partner is actually what I define as work. I think I used to just see the core casework as work, but it allows me now to have a more holistic perspective of what exactly is work. And my work is just so multifaceted, so multidimensional, and actually so enjoyable that I love it. I absolutely love it. And, and the best part is, is the unpredictability and the fact that no two days are the same.
0: I I love that. And I can just hear in your, the passion in your voice, when you speak about what you do, that you've really found your, your vocation, your profession, and you're living and, and breathing it. And I love that you're more than the lawyer, you know, you do all this extra work for communities to help people, to inspire people, to educate people. So it's, it's great. And I'm just so, so happy we're uh, we're getting to learn more about this. And you touched on it as well, the Caribbean desk, but you did. And I mentioned in the introduction that you launched the Hogan Lovells Caribbean desk. So congratulations on that, where you are advising on transaction and disputes. Um, would you mind explaining more about the desk?
1: Great. So um, first of all, maybe what I should say is that I actually see all of these things as being a lawyer, because I think we're now called to be rena- what I would call the renaissance lawyer, right? We're not just advising in isolation on our, you know, the small technical legal points. We want to be working hand in hand with our clients. And what better way to um, work hand in hand with our clients and actually be, you know, trusted friends of the business. We want to know the business and that's holistically, you know, when we do our BD, when we do our mentoring, we do D&I, you know, we are actually touching those clients in different multifaceted ways. But yeah, turning to the Caribbean desk. Um, Because I'm from the Caribbean, I'm passionate about it. You know, we always associate the Caribbean with beaches, rum, you know, fun. And it is that. It's definitely that. But I'm passionate about the Caribbean as a place of opportunity, good business, and ensuring that the Caribbean has the legal services of the top tier firms. Now, throughout my career, I've litigated a number of matters Um, for Caribbean governments, again, Caribbean governments involving matters in the Caribbean. And um, I've actually, at times, been quite um, sad at the fact that, you know, we're not getting the best of our, we're not working at the, you know, with the same tools, essentially, because sometimes some of the governments, they just can't afford the level of legal representations, even at the stage of negotiations, the power dynamics are extremely skewed. So um, this is our FUBU. This is For Us, By Us. I'm bringing back another hip-hop reference there. But it's really to ensure that those of us who are from the Caribbean and um, who are passionate about working in the Caribbean actually work for businesses who want to work in the Caribbean and for governments and industry, um, to ensure a sort of equality of arms, so to speak, um, so here at Hogan Novels, we're, we've always worked in the Caribbean, but we're amplifying that and we're making a big push to be um, the Caribbean's advisor of choice. And that is my passion because I want people to see the Caribbean as a place of opportunity and a place of business. We have a lot of investments coming in from China, from the Middle East. Um, we're seeing, with me, Mottley's move to Africa. Um, we're having a lot of investments also from the African region. So I want to make sure that businesses in the Caribbean and the Caribbean is actually equipped to really deliver on those. And I always say, I don't want us to be the extractive industry of Caribbean services. We have a duty as well as international law firms to give back. So, for example, this year, you know, we're exploring some secondments. We're presenting at conferences. We're doing some training in the region, lots of training. Um, and this is also why we formed and I made SoCal an offshoot where we form a society of Caribbean noise. So it's not just a Hogan Novels thing. So we have an entire network in London really invested in the work that has been done in the Caribbean, really giving back to Caribbean students in the UK. And I can talk about this, as you can tell, for a very long time, because Caribbean students have not been traditionally well represented, even with the push on diversity and inclusion. So I'm making a big push for those of Caribbean heritage to join the city, to excel, and for us to really pull them along. And we have great things in store, you know, with the Caribbean leaders, um, with governments, with members of the community. So I would encourage everybody listening to actually um, watch this space. You know, there's a lot coming and and I'm, I'm super excited about what we have to offer
0: and so are we and that's why we want to sort of get behind and, and support the, the great work because you're absolutely right and you know the more diverse talent and opportunities we can give to people um that we're all for that here on the show and i love the um the rapping uh, influences <laughs> and suggestions it reminds me of nick efuzela who we had who's the first black rapper and partner in a law firm who's at Sinkins come on the show and i was just getting some of his. i need to listen head. that but
1: episode yeah Yeah, absolutely do do. we'll
0: send we'll send it to you after this one but i'm thoroughly enjoying it and you talked a little bit about giving back before and i want to kind of just push a little bit more on the pro bono work, because you do do a tremendous amount, which has to be acknowledged, and you have assisted windress payments. So can you tell us more about that? And you know, it's a bit more about some of those other pro bono projects you've been involved in, because I know there's a lot. Yeah.
1: um, And I would say pro bono is one of my first loves, you know, access to justice. This is the reason I became a lawyer, you know, I became a litigator because of, you know, my personal attributes, but I became a lawyer because of justice, you know, I'm passionate about justice. And one of the reasons I decided to come back to Hogan Lovells actually, is because of the big push and the big culture um, of pro bono at this firm. We have a dedicated pro bono um, lawyer. I was actually one of the first Hogan Lovells pro bono fellows. So during my qualification leave, I worked for the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative um, and then came back to Hogan Lovells. So I've had a strong history of working in the pro bono space here at Hogan Lovells. And, you know, I someone asked me the other day when I was interviewing them, you know, do you do pro bono? And I said, we are the king of pro bono, right? Like, we do it really well. And Windrush is only one little slice of what we do. Um, I am very privileged to have, you know, we have a few Windrush cases on now. And those who don't know, these are individuals who had British citizenship, but the British government said that they didn't. Um, deported, a number of people treated them extremely badly. Um, and we are actually seeking compensation by helping them with their applications um, in relation to the Windrush Compensation Scheme. We're not the only firm that's doing this, but we're doing this. We're one of the few firms who's actually doing it for free. There's a number of firms who are doing it um, on a paid basis. You know, money has to be made, but we're one of the few firms who are actually doing this completely free for these individuals. And it's extremely rewarding to see people of my grand-aunt's generation, you know, who came here to serve and to work on the buses and you know, as nurses, um, to really get what they're owed. And it gives me a, a great sense of joy and personal satisfaction to do this for my community. But in terms of pro bono, um, we, we do so much in the space. We have a program called Hogan Love's Base, and we advise, you know, small businesses. And we had a special interest on Black female businesses, actually, just to help them to scale up and to give them that corporate advice, employment advice, IP advice that they needed. Um, We do that on an almost monthly basis. We have these clinics where they can actually join us. We encourage people to volunteer at the the RCJ. We contribute to a number of projects in relation to the UN sustainable goals. We're always writing research papers. Um, At the moment, I'm doing a collaboration with a huge technology company where we've entered into a memorandum of understanding in relation to a huge pro bono project in terms of British citizenship for children. And I can go on and on and on, but for every, every niche and for every, every interest, we have something. And that's not to talk about our dedicated partner, the Wildlife Trust. So we do a lot of work um, on rewilding, et cetera. So there's a lot there on the environment and meeting our ESG goals as well. Um, But yeah, if anybody wants to talk about pro bono, give me a call i can wax lyrical about it for hours so um and i I love it
0: yeah but and and we love what you're doing too so again thank you for sharing that and i'm sure people will be reaching out to you most definitely time for a short break from the show Are you still relying on spreadsheets to manage your legal matters? There's a better way to work. Our sponsor, Clio, is the cloud-based legal software that will transform the way your law firm operates. They offer legal practice management and client onboarding software that doesn't cost the earth. In fact, from as little as £49 per month, you can cut out all of those tedious admin tasks that you dread doing each week, each month. Automate the boring stuff, free up more time for the important stuff. That's what you get with Clio. Your clients will thank you for it. Your bank account will thank you for it. Your colleagues will thank you for it. And you can even thank me later for telling you all about it. To head to Clio.com forward slash legally speaking to see how Clio can help you. That's C L I O.com forward slash legally speaking. Now back to the show. You've spoken um, about your your role models before as well, and there are a good few. You know, you've mentioned sort of Cedar Klein-Edwards QC, you know, Dame Linda Dobbs, um, Sandy Okoru, Margaret Casey, Lee Hayford. You know, there's quite a lot of role models within, you know, you've looked up to over time. Why are these amazing women role models for you?
1: Oh, and it's great because this comes, you know, on just soon to be Women's History Month. And um, I love these women because they're all trailblazers in their own way. Celia Klein-Edwards QC, she was the first QC I knew in my Caribbean island of Grenada. She sadly passed. Um, And the first time I mentioned her actually in public, she passed a few months later. And I, I feel bad that I never really got the chance to give her flowers. She had a family, a big family, and she was a QC. And that said oodles to me as a young lawyer that it was possible and I never realized the effect that it actually had on me until much later in life that I actually saw a woman who was at the top of her game professionally and personally, and she made it seem so easy um Dame Linda Dobbs was the first high court judge again, you know just entering into these bastions of um places where you know diversity is almost negligible and doing what she has done and being an exemplary member of the judiciary. And still having the time to give back to the Commonwealth in terms of all the training for the judiciary she's done. I mean that alone just role modeled to me what we can do when we enter into places where we're not in the majority. So she was my example for that. Um Sandy O'Koro, I really like the fact that she um, made that transition from traditional banking to the World Bank and then moved back again. Um, she's the queen of the squiggly career to me, you know, and I've had a squiggly career. I haven't had it easy, where I felt that I could stay in a place on one law firm or in one place all of my life. I've had to promote myself, essentially. And I've had to take opportunities that have been given to me. And the fact that she's just been able to do that with such grace, I adore that. I love it. And I think she's just such a great example as a woman and as a Black woman. And then Margaret. Margaret was one of the first senior women, actually, that I saw growing up um, when she was at John Lewis. Um, and Her family are just, you know, exemplary, and I think they're a great example of legacy. But as a woman, you know, when I really got to know Margaret's story, just in terms of, you know, the challenges she's actually faced to occupy a position and the strength and presence of mind um, that she has had to display in terms of, you know, just, just, just the obstacles that she's faced and to maintain the outlook that she has. I just draw on that whenever things get difficult, whenever I feel that, you know, it's too hard. I just think of Margaret just being the first black partner in an international firm and, you know, facing what she faced. Um, It's her story to tell, so I won't. Um, I just really feel that, you know, I can, this is whatever I'm facing in the day is relatively minor.
0: Yeah, I love the mindset. And I love those, those great examples and, and reasons all heavily justified. Uh, I just love it. And I, let's stick with role models, because it's important. Because, you know, why is it significant for, for young people to to have role models, maybe from similar backgrounds, for example?
1: Well, I just like to relate it to the way I grew up. And I always say as a black person, I grew up in the Caribbean, in Grenada, everyone around black. So being black, I always say I learned to be black when I moved to the UK, because I never saw it as a limitation. My prime minister was black, my, uh, my lawyers were black, the police were black, everybody. was black. So I didn't, I didn't see it as a thing. And it didn't really factor into my choice making. And um, I was even though I wasn't from an economically wealthy background, I believed in the fact that if I worked really hard, and if I was um, if I dedicated myself to things, I didn't think that the color of my skin would be an issue. And um, I think it's the same here, that that level of role modeling, in respect of whatever form of diversity that you see, whether it's your social background, whether it's being LGBTQ+, whether it's being neurodiverse, the more you see something that you can identify with, the more you can believe that is possible. So I think that is so important for young people to have that role modeling, so that they can learn that the things that make them different are not impediments in the sense that they're, in the sense that they're not absolute impediments, that they can be overcome. Um, but that's not to say that without role models, you know, we'll all just curl up and die. You know, if we don't have role models, as one of my friends, Carolyn Flanagan, said, you have to be the first. And there's a lot in being the first. But role models are so important because um, they are really the first point of reference, even subconsciously, um, even before you get to the conscious plane, that really make young people sit up and think. So I think you know it's it's super important to have role models who are as diverse as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I I also talk about your sort of you know your 360 board of directors for for yourself as well, and, and looking 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 around that board and making sure there is you know diversity and there's people you look up to because you can see it you can achieve it you can believe it and all of that great stuff and let's stick with that sort of theme then because you are also the co-founder of creating pathways a mentoring program for black boys i think it's fantastic can you tell us more about the program and what inspired you to co-found that yeah
1: um so it was 2014 and we were having a lot it is way before george floyd right so companies were not you know, big on anything that had the word black in it, to be honest. Um, It was seen as almost militant. Um, I remember talking about sponsorship for the BSN. I was a big part of the Black Solicitors Network. And, you know, there was a sense of discomfort around the word, which, you know, I didn't really understand. And I was coming into my own, you know, I felt really confident in myself and my abilities. But a lot of people were reaching out to me saying, you know, I haven't been taken on at my firm. I'm not getting the best work. I'm not really enjoying law. I want to quit. And my friend, Pamela Dussu, and I, we sat down and we realized they were at the two to four PQE mark. Um, And that they were leaving, we noticed anecdotally, at a much higher rate than lawyers from other backgrounds. So we thought the stay gap was really small for black lawyers. Now, years later, there's actually been studies that has validated that, but this was just from our personal experiences with so many people leaving the law, becoming disillusioned and disenchanted. And we thought, what if, you know, we were able to put these young, we couldn't help everybody, we couldn't mentor everybody, we couldn't advise everyone. But What if we were able to put high-performing Black lawyers in touch with high-performing Black lawyers in their same, in their industry? or in their um, scope of work or practice area, so they can actually mentor them. And by mentoring we men, not just meeting for coffee, you know, what are your goals, etc., but really taking them through what does it take to succeed in an organization, and what do you need to be doing, what are you doing wrong, and how can you fix it. So that's how we started. And this was the inspiration to really just try and improve the stay gap. And I'm happy to say that in eight years, we have We founded, you know, some people are now GC, some people are on the way to partnership. I mean, we're really, really proud of the program because it has really helped a lot of our Black lawyers. Now, I'm actually transposing some of these points and what we've learned from the program into, you know, what can we do for women? What can we do for other underrepresented groups? What can we do for social mobility? Because it's really the same issue presented in different ways as You know audrey lord said we don't lead single issue lives you know it's all intersectional so the good thing about it is that we through trial and error we've learned what works and now it's a matter of expanding and applying it um to 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 as many different facets of the diversity equation as we possibly can
0: yes really well said and it's it's, again i love what you're you're doing with creating pathways it's fantastic. And, and I know you're you're very passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as am I, and you know, I do a lot of work for the, the NRG lawyers that's um headed up by the wonderful Akil Hunt oh, over lovely. at CMS on their advisory team. I think they think they're doing great work. And you know, you are passionate about you know diversity inequality. And, and in your interview, I believe, with the legal business, you state there is still a lot of gender bias in city law firms. Law firms need to be led by courageous leaders who are willing to address the existing inequalities and biases. So, Akima, what active steps do you think firms can take to change? Stop
1: having panels and focus groups. (laughs) Um, I say this as a joke, but I actually think panels are the death of action. You know, everyone has a panel to discuss, you know, what are the experiences? What are the challenges? We know now what the challenges are. And we need courage. That's really what we need. We need people who are not afraid to shake up the status quo, to say what needs to be said and to do what needs to be done. It's very, very simple. And I think what we have at the moment is a lot of talking at the top. So, you know, businesses will say what, you know, they want to say in terms of diversity. We're very committed, etc. you know, yada, yada, yada. And then at the bottom, we're having, you know, greater recruitment going out and saying we're very committed and hiring a lot of people, um, a lot of women, a lot of, you know, minorities, etc. And where it really breaks down is the bit in the middle and really embedding those values in the organization. And by embedding, I mean, you know, letting the people who don't abide by those values, letting them know and letting them suffer the consequences and really um, helping and promoting those who actually abide by the values of the organization. Um, So I think that's what I mean by courage, by actually backing it up with um, consequences and rewards um, if you are serious about gender bias, if you're serious about um, improving and embracing equity in your organization, you need to be and specific about it and action-oriented. And this is what we need. We need people who are going to put their heads above the parapet and actually do what we know we should be doing. We don't need another focus group. We don't need another panel. We actually just need action delivered so um that is my view um and i think if there's a will to do it um we'll be able to um and hopefully not in our kids generation or in our grandkids generation which is the way we're heading at the moment
0: yeah no absolutely not one day day one now and i I love that you talk about um you know action because the actions will always speak louder than words and You know, one of my mentors said to me, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. So being accountable for it. And like you say, actually, let's not just put this marketing literature or things out there. Let's actually hold ourselves accountable because what gets measured gets what gets measured get done. And I think there's really good advice that you said there. So I'm going to go back to your younger self, because when you were 17 years old, I believe you were recognized for your advocacy and environmental issues and awarded the UN's Global 500 Award, incredible achievement. How did you feel about that?
1: To to be honest, I didn't really recognize its significance. Again, it comes back, you know, to my storytelling. Um, I was just really passionate about the environment and the space that I lived in, you know, and seeing what, you know, overdevelopment had done to the Caribbean countries, just sustainable development before it was a thing or catchphrase. And I, you know, unilaterally just started writing my local paper pretty much every week about the latest environmental, and I was doing it for a number of years since I was 10 years old. So when I was awarded that, um, that, that prize, it was way before its time, before ESG became a thing. Um, and actually, I actually didn't even recognize how significant it was. Um, but what it, what it definitely demonstrated to me is that people are watching. And sometimes you do feel that you're alone in a crusade and in a sea of voices. But it's nice to be recognized and to be, to, to be cognizant that people are watching and um, yeah i now when i look back at it i thought you know it's such an incredible honor and um obviously over the moon um but it makes you more accountable as well i feel like i owe it to my 17 year old self to continue advocating for the environment particularly in the caribbean region so that's another one of my big um objectives for this year and beyond
0: yeah well again congratulations and you absolutely are you know holding yourself accountable because the actions are there and everything that you're doing is absolutely there. Um and I mentioned in the introduction as well you served as the um Grenada's ambassador to the Holy See. Do you mind telling us more about that role at the time?
1: Well, I was asked to do it. Um at first I thought, you know, hmm, do I really do I really want to do it? Um the Vatican is such a, you know, a huge organization, so traditional. Anybody who knows me is, you know, I'm all about shaking up the status quo. Um and um, it was great, actually. I no longer do it, but um, I was able to serve on a number of different committees and to attend various conferences, and to really assist in drafting a policy in relation to safeguarding in the Caribbean, which is a huge problem. Miners, um, I joined the Santa Mata group, which um, aims to assist in um, preventing trafficking. So I was able. I think a lot of people don't really know about some of the charitable aims of the Vatican and you know the kind of work that we do at a diplomatic level so that was hugely rewarding for me um I absolutely loved it I I love being of service um unfortunately I it you know there's a lot I'm doing here in terms of my work at the firm um and I felt it was best for someone else to pick up where I left off but it was absolutely one of the most gratifying things that I've had to do
0: yeah absolutely and it, it sounds amazing and I know it was so, so many great experiences in there and I guess leading with with experience then we want to sort of pick your brain one last of course. time if we may you know what, what what advice would you give to you know aspiring junior lawyers who want a career in litigation and arbitration and you know what can to, want to perhaps get to the the top and may have to overcome challenges along the way
1: i would tell them you know pick up as much relevant experience as you possibly can you know, um, there's nothing preventing you from signing up to your local high street farm to find out about how litigation um, works. You know, you may not be able to get a big fancy internship, um, but, you know, you can demonstrate your interest by volunteering. You can demonstrate your interest by signing up to even spend a day with a law firm. It says a lot, particularly if you do it on your own. You don't do it by your parents, you know, asking a friend. I think that says a lot you know, about your drive, your hunger, your ambition. Um, I think you should also look out for opportunities that increase your general knowledge about the area. A lot of the work I do is actually procedural. So um, showing a general interest in, you know, litigation, procedure, and cases, it can't be a bad thing. But above all, I would say be curious and show initiative. That, to me, is one of the best qualities traits of a good lawyer. And Internal turn a good litigator, you know, following the facts, um, knowing the facts and knowing when to apply the law. So being being curious, being inquisitive, being creative, you know, those are some of the things that I would suggest. And and role modeling, mentors, mentors you know, look out for people. LinkedIn is just so flat these days. You can use it to find a mentor or someone who actually does the kind of work that you want to do. You know, I open my... Um, I'm going to regret saying this, but I do open my diary um, for a set number <laughs> consultations of consultations Some people who do want a bit of mentoring. Um, and I set aside time on a Friday, you know, three slots, 20 minutes, just to take people, um, people's requests in terms of, you know, am I doing the right thing? And, you know, the best people come really prepared and I'm and, and more than happy to help them. So not a formal mentoring relationship, but just to pick my brain. And I do that every month um so um yeah i would say take advantage of the people who have walked the road before you don't have to learn by your own experience you can also learn from the mistakes of you know people like me
0: and it's a great way to shortcut the system as well you know you've got the wisdom you've had those errors you can pass on that you know you can feed that back but you made a very good point people's time is their greatest commodity it's the only thing none of us on this planet can get back and so if you're going to get 20 minutes of somebody's time Absolutely. Come prepared utilize that time to be as effective productive and get that wisdom as possible it's a really good takeaway that and plus everything else you shared around curiosity and you know mentorship really sage advice so i'd listen people advise people to rewind that listen to that segment a couple of times and take action on those really great points that Kima just shared. And you mentioned again throughout um, you know, the Caribbean desk. And we mentioned as well the mentoring scheme creating pathways. Where can people find out more? Can you shout out some some links or where people can get more information?
1: Wonderful. So Hogan Lovels, just Google Hogan Lovels Caribbean Desk, and you'll find everything about it there. We're currently um, updating our web pages, but we'll soon have a very cool dedicated page and we'll soon have our LinkedIn page as well. So um, Society of Caribbean lawyers, www.socalawyers.com and for those of you who are who know the Caribbean, Soca is a big genre of music. Um, so we're playing on that. Um, and then the creating pathways, you can go via the BSN website, BSN and then Google Creating Pathways. We're going to take a new cohort in October, so please be on the lookout if you want to be part of the program if you're between two and five years PqE, that's usually when we get our mentees. So all of the above, or you can just follow me on LinkedIn, I'll talk about one or the other at some point. Um, so yeah, um, I'm, I'll be more than delighted to answer any questions if needed.
0: Absolutely, and I would encourage people to follow you on LinkedIn, and you know all the other sort of um, touch points and uh, ways to get in contact you just shared there. So that just leads me to say thank you so, so much, Akima, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I would like to wish you on behalf of all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, lots of continued success with your career and future pursuits. But for now, from all of us, over and out.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, The Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com, for the link to join our community there. Over and out.